Welcome to another edition of Garden Talk. Hi, Larry Miller here, and we have a great guest for you today. Mark Dwyer is back with us. His business is Landscape Prescriptions by MD, and he's the healing garden manager at Edgerton Hospital. Mark's a speaker, educator, author, degrees in landscape architecture and urban forestry, and uh, it's great to have him back. We're going to take a look at foliage plants and what they add to your garden. And I hope you'll join in with your questions. Uh, you know, we can talk foliage plants. We can get into some others as well. But uh, foliage plants is where we start. And you can call us at 1-800-642-1234. 1-800-642-1234. Or you can send an email to ideas at wpr.org. Ideas at wpr. Org. Mark Dwyer, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Good morning, Larry. Thanks for having me. So foliage plants, what do you consider a foliage plant? Well, you know, I consider there's merits of every plant in terms of what it contributes uh, in regards to foliage. And I think in, out in the garden, we start to focus on those that have maybe a more pronounced coloration, like the maroons or the yellows or maybe a, a nice white crisp variegation. Mm. And those uh, contributions certainly offer an extended amount of interest because, you know, seeking a progression of blooms in the garden makes sense. We'll be seeing our, our earliest blooms shortly. In fact, snowdrops are blooming here in Edgerton this morning. Um <laughs> So we like to see blooms from uh, late winter all the way till hard frost, and that's totally valid. But consider the the elongated contribution of foliage, the, the color, and also the texture when we talk about bold versus fine, and even the nuances of a, even a matte finish versus glossy foliage. So I, I would encourage people to really take a closer look at what foliage can contribute in a, contribu- in a combination, uh, whether it's a primary feature of interest or even secondary. Yeah, they, and, and, you know, I think most of us just think about the flower, or many of us, I should say, think about the flowers and, and don't consider the foliage, and, and yet it brings a lot to the landscape. Oh, it absolutely does. You know, I think of, uh, for instance, a hibiscus called Holy Grail, which has, and it's a herbaceous plant. It comes up from the ground every year with the deepest maroon foliage, and then in summer you get those dinner plate-sized bright red flowers. But regardless of the summer blooms, which are impressive, that deep maroon is a nice, rich contribution. And conversely, I have a favorite perennial geranium called Blue Sunrise. And what's great about this plant is its bright gold foliage, and it gets beautiful blue flowers in late spring into summer. So you get your typical geranium flowers. Um, But that bright golden contribution is a beacon for really five to six months of the season as opposed to six weeks of flowering. So you know, again, that color can really pop from our foliage. Uh, it, it absolutely can. What do you look for when selecting a plant for its leaves? Is it shape, size? What What are you looking for? Yeah, great question, Larry. Primarily, it's it's color contribution initially. And keeping in mind that when we talk about foliage in the garden, a lot of us mm-hmm. immediately think of fall color, which is also a valid consideration. But we're talking about more color in season. And, you know, when I'm designing, I like to consider pops of, of gold and those, those, again, deep colors of maroon and, and everything in between. But the foliage size becomes important because that's the textural contribution. If, if we only saw the garden in black and white, 
the interest would be provided by that variability in really fine textured plants, very small leaves or elongated leaves versus very bold and thick leaves. So those are all considerations and, and things to look for at your local nurseries when you're really examining, examining all the contributions of a plant for the growing season. I know that you spend a lot of time, uh, well, part of your business is placing plants in the, the landscape properly for your clients? What, what tips do you have for placing them in your landscape? Well, the placement becomes important because, of course, we're all considering what the final canvas will be, our, our work of art out in the garden. And, and that comes with time, and we're always editing. It, anyone who says their garden is finished is, is not being truthful. We're always adapting to a very fluid situation. But in terms of placement, even before I consider design, you, you really have to consider site. Uh, of course, you know, the soils, um, what sort of sunlight, the watering regime. And once you've narrowed down your palette that's conducive to that space, you start deciding on maybe you, you want to focus on native plants or a certain color range. But putting plants that are good neighbors, not just that look good together and, and hang out nicely, but have the same conditions, you know, will take this, tolerate the same cultural conditions. And the, the good news for gardeners is there's so many plants out there for the consumer. You, the sky's the limit with what you can do. But we want success in our garden, and that starts with knowing your plant and what it expects from you. What are some of your, uh, let's talk about perennials and versus annuals. What are some of your favorite perennial foliage plants? Well, I dive immediately into the shade, and of course, everyone's familiar with hostas and their great coloration and their bold texture, and there's just a wide range of hostas, to be sure. But I start leaning into the interesting ferns, um, things like our native maidenhair fern that's very fine textured, or getting into the Japanese painted ferns that have a nice silvering contribution. So not just fine texture, but offering illumination or, or that pop of kind of white in the garden. And there's some great hybrid uh, ferns that are a combination of um, painted fern and lady ferns, and folks should look for some great varieties like ghost. It's called a ghost fern, or Godzilla is another variety. Um, so I love the textural contributions of ferns in the shade. And as we get into more sun, I start leaning into those plants that have um, a, a more colorful contribution, like some of the interesting penstemons or, or beard tongues with beautiful tubular flowers for a brief period of time. But there's some great, really dark uh, maroon foliage ones like. I'm throwing names out here, but Midnight Masquerade, um, there, there's some great combinations of, of maroon foliage that acts as a, fo a foil for the flowers. So, again, the nuances of foliage are, are there, and I think sometimes we just haven't noticed them, but they are contributors. What about annuals? Yeah, with annuals, uh, again, the sky's the limit because I'm, I lean heavily into um, coleus, of course, and and coleus aren't just your grandma's plants for the shade. They're, they've been bred to be extremely sun tolerant. They're, they're, they're moisture hogs. They need plenty of moisture and good soil. But they've developed uh, almost a, a red. You know, they've gotten into the red tones, the bright oranges, all the subtleties of variegation and leaf size and scalloped edges and small versus I mean, we can get coleus up to waist height in Wisconsin. It's not, you can do it. So I, of course, go to, to coleus, but when you're, whether you're mixing a container uh, ingredients or a border or every, anywhere you're putting annuals, when you go to your local garden centers and nurseries, look for the foliage, the deep maroons, the bright golds, because they're going to offer, again, that five to six months of interest. And 
that's not to say flowers aren't important, but foliage can, can be a primary asset. And annuals are, are really instant gratification in filling space with that foliage contribution. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What, what about um, containers? Uh, are containers a good way to add foliage, or can they be? I think so. And, you know, containers, of course, offer us the ability to garden in spaces that we don't have traditional open space. For instance, at my home on my my deck and patio, we do a lot of different containers. And they offer the opportunity to grow pretty much anything because you're in control of the soil and the the site, you know, the, the sunlight and wherever you place that container. I will add the caveat that you really need to make sure drainage is included, adequate drainage. But back to foliage, I, I start by picking my foliage plants for containers. And in fact, I've had containers that are entirely, primarily foliage contributors that no one would walk by and say, where are the flowers? Just because they're so colorful with yeah. deep maroons and bright reds and yellows. And uh, so containers, whether it's plants spilling over the edge or centerpieces like dark leaf cannas or elephant ears. There's just amazing array of seasonal plants that will will scratch that itch for what you want to put in a container. So, uh, by the way, do you have some new varieties that you're excited about this season? Oh, there's there's so many new things coming out. I, I, it's, it's tough to even narrow it down. Um, I, I've, I've ordered so much for our healing garden here at Edgerton Hospital, and the focus, again, on foliage becomes important. But uh, there's a, an amazing um, – oh, I'm going to forget the um, – okay, got it. My memory is starting to fail me. But there's a new silver plant, one of the centaurias, called um, silver swirl. And so when you if you think of um, – Silver swirl. Dust, silver swirl centauria. So it, it looks like a dusty miller. But its common name is Summer Snowflake, and it's got this real neat radial pattern of felty, like pure white silver leaves. And Dusty Muller is still a great plant, don't get me wrong, but I feel that whites and silvers are neglected in, throughout our landscapes. So the repetition of silver is a nice unifying color. And the thing about this Summer Snowflake, this silver swirl centauria, again, is that it, you need to know what it prefers, and that's very lean soils and not being overwatered. So that again, knowing your going back to knowing your plant. But there's so many great accent plants in the silver ranges and some neat artemisias. And your garden centers are going to pack all of this great stuff. And it's a matter of getting first dibs and getting there because it, you may have an early spring. Who knows what's going to happen? But it's it's a competitive business getting out there and getting some of the best stuff early. I know in southern Wisconsin, it looks like uh, temperatures, high 40s, and maybe even a day of 50 in the Madison area. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Scary. (laughs) uh, Coming up uh, for sure. As you looked at, by the way, just thinking of the weather, did the weather, I mean, we've had some weird kind of strange weather over this past winter. Did you notice any issues or have you so far noticed any issues or what should we be looking for in the plants that we have in the ground? Well, my concern at this point is is early emergence of, of some plants simply because uh, most of us, at least in the southern portion of the state, receive that zinger of snowfall in mid-January followed by a real hard freeze. And so I would have preferred, as we speak today, frozen ground with three to four inches of snow today would be awesome. Um, we don't have that. Um, and, and it's the, the, the soil, uh, despite a crust of frost, is, is unfrozen. So it's absorbing moisture, which is good. But people will see things starting to come up early. And the real concern is if we head into a really cold March, particularly further up north, you might consider 
adding some evergreen boughs, some straw, just a little insulation uh, to, to help keep things frozen as opposed to the freezing and thawing on that layer where the crown of so many plants, particularly perennials, exists. I feel it's out of our hands, um, but I, I always get wary of an early start to spring because Mother Nature has a way of um, giving us a reality check, and that still may happen. Uh, yeah. Well, I had I had fun uh, last weekend at the Garden Expo. It was great. And by the way, thanks to everybody who showed up uh, for uh, the presentation that I had uh, with a couple of, of great old friends, Dr. Dev and, and Lisa Johnson. We had a, a wonderful time. I know there is uh, a Hardy Plant Sale, Hardy Plant Society Sale. You might say something about the Wisconsin Hardy Plant Society and, and then maybe some comments on that sale. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the Wisconsin Hardy Plant Society is an organization of well over 700 members throughout the state and beyond. And every spring, uh, they have a plant sale, and folks should mark down. It, it's, it's a ways away on the calendar, but it's Sunday, May 19th, out at the West Madison Agricultural Research uh, Station, and that's on Mineral Point Road out in Verona. Uh, anyway, May 19th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., and it's a huge focus on native plants. Over 100 varieties of native plants and little two-inch plugs, nice plantable size, very affordable. There's some other plants being offered. It's a fundraiser to support the group, and folks should check out the Wisconsin Hardy Plant Society for membership, as they should many of our state organizations, Hosta Society, Daylily Society, Iris Society, Woody Plant Society. It goes on and on. Wisconsin has a very rich history with our, our plant groups. But again, that May 19th sale is a fundraiser to support the group and, and give uh, monies to um, budding projects, new, new developments, and supporting uh, the industry. Mark Dwyer, our guest today, his business is Landscape Prescriptions by MD. And we've started by talking about adding color and texture with foliage plants. And certainly we can take questions there, but we can handle other questions as well as it comes to the landscape and your plants. And I hope you'll join in. The number to call is 1-800-642-1234, 800 642 or you could email us, the email address, ideas at wpr.org, ideas at wpr.org. Jill Nadeau is our producer today. Tyler Ditter, our engineer. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with my guest, Mark Dwyer, speaker, educator, author, degrees in landscape architecture and urban forestry, and is the healing garden manager at Edgerton Hospital. Questions for him as we move along, the number to call 800-642-1234 or email to ideas at wpr.org. Susan in Appleton uh, has something for us. Let's go there. Hi, Susan. Good morning, Larry. So um, spring has arrived early in Appleton. Um, my daffodils are up about two inches now, and my peach tree just started blooming. It normally blooms in April. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, wow. The I wouldn't worry about the daffodils. They're, even even some hard frost, they'll be fine. They're still going to bloom, and and likely they'll they'll still time themselves for an April bloom as well. But it sounded like you said a peach tree blooming early. Um, that, that that of course is a huge concern, uh, and there's not a lot you can do to 
protect them, uh, with the exception you might consider if you're going to get uh, a real hard frost, you might consider misting a little water on there. And that's something they do down in the orange groves in, in Florida when they're, they may experience a frost is to um, have that water will freeze first on the surface of the, the flowers. But the, the real concern is a dip below 20 degrees is going to be, um, it, it's not going to, I can't say it won't damage the plant, but it certainly would take the flowers out. So uh, it's a crapshoot at this point with Mother Nature's decision. And we still have a lot of winter left, unfortunately. Yeah. When we have uh, southern Wisconsin, wasn't didn't we have snow in April? <laughs> One big snowfall in April last year. Yep, that's right. <laughs> oh my goodness! As Susan, good luck with that peach tree. Uh, Sarah in Lake Geneva will go to you. Hi, Sarah. Hi. I have a question. We have a hill that has a. There's the hill, and b. There's shade, and grass seed has not done well there. And this year, the turkeys were out foraging for acorns. So where there was any grass, that's now been decimated. Any ideas? So alternatives maybe for grass. And it's a shady spot, you said, uh, Sarah? Yes, correct. Yeah, that can, be, that can be a tough spot because you have to consider the return of the turkeys, too, checking things out. So the shade, to me, would indicate the possibility to do a little more with looking into native sedges or, or carex, C-A-R-E-X. And I've, I've said it on Larry's show in the past, I think one of the best uh, collections of sedges is at Ulbrick Botanical Gardens in Madison, Wisconsin. They have used them as grass alternatives in shady areas, both native and non-native sedges. And the nice thing about them is they're extremely durable, hardy, and can take a little bit of abuse, which sounds like that may be the location. So I, I would encourage you to visit Ulbrick. And the one sedge that leaps out to me that I love is Pennsylvania sedge or Carex Pennsylvanica, which can take quite a bit of shade and, and some abuse and ends up be creating a really nice matrix. If you plant it as plugs, you can have a really nice pseudo lawn, not anything you even need to mow. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything with it. You just kind of leave it alone. Uh, but it'll take the abuse of turkeys and that shade. That sounds like a great idea. I like Pennsylvania sedge, and it's, and it'll, uh, you know, it's going to protect from any um, runoff. You know, if there's, uh, you obviously want to protect for that, Sarah. So, yeah, good, good suggestion. But, yeah, Ulbrich has got some, <laughs> they've got some beautiful sedges, and it would be worth a trip uh, for you to come to. Um, Madison and see what they have at Ulbrich. It's a fun place to visit anyway. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Sarah, thanks again. Ron in Plover will go to you next. Hi, Ron. Hi. I've got a question on burning bushes. I I have a whole hedgerow of them, and uh, in the past, or uh, let me back up a step. Those these things are, are well overgrown. I've let them let them go. I normally trim them, but uh, I've had good luck in the past carving them really down a lot uh, in the middle of the winter while they're they're dormant. I'd like to do that with this hedgerow I have, but I'm afraid that with our mild winter, they're not dormant enough, and I may damage them. Hmm. Well, um, two comments, if I may. I, first of all, I, I 
be remiss if I didn't mention uh, there's a, a huge concern about uh, burning bushes and the fact that birds are distributing their seeds throughout woodlands and it's it's become uh, it's moving around the state as it is the Midwest. So there are, there are some concerns about it in terms of spread. But having said that, it's, it's a very effective hardy plant and great in a hedgerow, as you've mentioned. I'll say you, you cannot hurt that plant. So it's not too late to hack away at it. I, I would encourage you uh, to, to butcher it as soon as you can. And um, I, I've done things to burning bush I can't mention on air, and they've all recovered. So um, cut it about a foot shorter than the height that you desire because you'll get a rebound of a lot of new growth. Um, but uh, the timing is actually perfect. I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it at all, and it'll be none the wiser. You can, again, prune away. There you go, Ron. Thank you very much uh, for calling. Appreciate it. You can join in, too. Number to call, 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. Mike emailed to ask about starting marigolds indoors from seed and getting them to bloom by the time it's warm enough to plant them outside. (laughs) He likes marigolds because deer, at least his deer, don't eat them. So if there are any hardy blooming plants that are deer resistant, uh, please share that as well. Mm, great questions. And here at the Edgerton Healing Garden, we have a, a huge deer population, and we use a lot of marigolds for the exact same reason. Um, the challenge with starting them too early is despite interior temperatures, lighting, all of those things, they germinate very quickly. So the real danger inside is they'll get leggy despite maybe potentially blooming, and you'll have to snip them back and do a lot of other things. So, um, of course, when you go to the garden centers in early spring, they've been forced into bloom because of the, the greenhouse temperature. So I wouldn't worry so much about having them bloom when you place them out in April or May, simply because when the soil warms, they're going to bloom extremely quickly anyway. And I usually start marigold seeds only six to eight weeks before I set them out. So I'm, I'm starting them down here in southern Wisconsin in later March, early April. Um, but the marigolds themselves are excellent for, for deer resistance. And I, I tell you, this has been a case study here at this healing garden because I'm seeing that they won't touch salvia. Salvia is entirely left alone, which is great. I'm seeing things like um, ladies' mantle is, is left alone. Uh, Amsonia or bluesar, another great plant, entirely left alone. Uh, some of the things they're nibbling on continue to surprise me, um, but those are absolute slam dunks for, um, uh, for perennials. And when, you, when I say salvia, annual salvias as well, totally left alone. So that's a slam dunk, whether they're perennial or, um, or um, annual. Ron, lots of good tips there. Thank you so much uh, for calling. Appreciate it. Mark emailed to ask if you have any recommendation or have any recommended foliage and flower combination that work especially well in containers. Yeah, well, there there are literally limitless combinations. And I, I like to start with a container regardless of size. I alluded earlier, I, I focus on, on foliage initially, but I start with the centerpiece. And if you're reading about how to design containers, they'll refer to that centerpiece as the thriller. It doesn't have to be the primary component, but it, it may offer scale. And so, for instance, I might use an Australia canna, which is a really dark maroon uh, centerpiece, or an elephant ear. There's a great one called um, black coral, uh, many dark leaf, almost black leaf elephant ears as a centerpiece. And then I start pairing down with yellows or maybe hints of orange. So I'm using bright colors to play off the dark centerpiece. 
and then I work to the trailing plants as well. So it's a matter of, and I have to say, sometimes my best designs are happenstance. I'm, I have <laughs> the plants, and I'm just slinging them together, but I'm considering how the plants play off of each other and become foils, and that's what you have to do with the foliage. So there are limitless combinations, but to Larry's earlier comment about texture, do make sure bold and fine texture are represented as well. So flower power is awesome, but foliage in containers can be paramount, the primary contributor. So start from the middle and work your way out to the edges. That's really good advice. Uh, Paul in Richland Center, we'll give you a chance. Hi, Paul. Hey, thank you very much. I have a question about ferns, too. I have a, a rather large bed on the north side of my garage of fiddleback ferns, and they grow prolifically, as you just said, and about this time of this, the spring and the early summer, when they really start to look good and they're kind of waving in the breeze, as soon as I get a rain, all and it doesn't even have to be a hard rain, they all flatten down, then they break, and then they start to rot, and it's usually <laughs> about, good grief, the middle of July to the end of July, I'm cutting them all off. And there are other houses in my neighborhood that have the same thing, and they've got theirs going until September and October. And I don't know what the issue is with mine. Now, the crowns of these plants are sticking pretty far out of the ground. That's not the way I planted them, but they seem to be lifting themselves up. And I'm just wondering if that's the issue. They're just not maybe buried deep enough to get enough support uh, to deal with that, because they also never seem to dry out either, which doesn't mm. help. So, mm. All right. Yeah, great question. And, and what you referred to as the, the fiddlehead ferns, those are definitely ostrich ferns, which are uh, uh, native, and uh, they can, they're beautiful. They can get quite large. They can spread like the dickens. They do take up some space. Um, but the crown you're observing is natural. I have a patch in my backyard where I could go out today, and I've got four to six-inch the, the brown sort of clustered crown where the plant will emerge for an older fern. My advice, first of all, I would wonder if, if deer maybe are bedding down in the ferns, maybe flattening them uh, might be a concern. But the thing with an ostrich fern is, is not only are they difficult to, to remove if that's ever a decision, but they're so vigorous. If, you have, if they start to flop, feel free to cut them back. You'll get regrowth. And they're also rhizotomous, meaning you'll you'll get little little pups will be popping up here and there along the root systems. So feel free to do again a, a butchering of those that get really floppy, and you'll see some very quick regrowth. But you're not doing anything wrong. That's pretty natural. Um, but a little abuse on your part will um, will end up getting some nice results. But keep them in check because boy, they they can really spread. <laughs> there you go, Paul. Get after them when they when they fall over. Oh gosh, Barb in Sun Prairie, your turn. Hi, Barb. Hello. What can we do for you? Well, I'm looking at my 15 year old plus years. It's a little more than 15. It's a big locust tree, and the squirrels have been chewing on the bark, um, mostly up top where all the branches come off and things like that. And it's and I've never seen them do that. For some reason, they just did it this year. And I have bare, bare branch parts, and and uh, I've seen them just kind of chewing on twigs. And I think this is so strange, but I don't know 
like what I can do, and I hope my tree's okay. Hmm. Yeah, that's a tough one to diagnose because it, it could be, I'm not sure if you have a honey locust or if you have a, a black locust, regardless of, of what sort of locust you have. It's not unusual to have squirrel nibbling on um, younger branches, and if, if they're really peeling it back, that becomes of more concern. But usually it's a cosmetic thing, and those, those trees will recover if the squirrels aren't getting into that cambium layer. If they're not, if they're not girdling that branch, uh, it'll likely just be fine unless there's repeated nibbling. So I, I don't have an easy answer to, to thwart squirrels that are, you know, chomping down on the, the locust, but... I guess just keep an eye on it, and at some point, if you have an arborist, go up there in a in a bucket truck and take a look. But if you, I would wait to see it leaf out and see if you have any uh, like smaller leaves or dieback associated with those branches. And if you don't, I, I wouldn't worry about it. All right, Barb, there you go. Thank you so much for calling, and you can uh, join in too at one eight hundred six four two one two three four eight hundred six four two one two three four or email to ideas at WPR.org. Carson in Menasha emailed, his backyard is a clay base, which doesn't drain very well, or quickly at least. He ends up with a pond. Anything he can plant to help the drainage or water consumption? That's a great question. And, you know, um, the healing garden here, oddly, is a heavy clay, so... The, the thing about clay, it's quite nutrient-rich. It's just that, that moisture retentiveness can be challenging for a lot of plants. You know, I would take a look. There's a woody plant, and it's native to a good portion of North America, um, eastern North America, called buttonbush or cephalanthus. And there's some great varieties out there of this buttonbush of different sizes. And it can take a wide range of soils and actually prefers it quite wet. Gets beautiful um, spherical flowers in summer. Very beautiful plant consider that. Um, there's some dogwoods that can take quite a bit of moisture. Um, so when you go to your area nursery or garden center, um, mention those conditions that you've got a wet area and what, what's going to do okay there and sop up some of that moisture and, and thrive. And I think you'll find button bushes and some dogwoods will, will fit the bill. And there's, there's many perennials that will also take uh, heavy moisture as well. So the palette is not limited for you. It's actually pretty expansive. So um, get some additional advice and you'll, you'll be off in gardening. Another listener emailed to ask, what would be the best hosta to plant under and around lilac bushes? And I'm not sure if they're asking in terms of color or, or, or you know, usefulness or what. Yeah, that's a, that's a subjective question. It's tough to say. Uh, my concern would be, is a lilac in enough sun where the hostas might struggle in the heat of summer and have a little crispiness to the leaves because... Um, I love golden hostas, but uh, in full sun situations, they can be a little challenged if moisture becomes a, an issue. Um, that Wisconsin Hosta Society is a great group to get involved with, and, and I'm sure they could give hundreds and hundreds of recommendations. But again, they likely would all be subjective. So um, tough to say <laughs> what combo would work. Nathan emailed uh, to ask your thoughts on redbud trees in the garden. There are, there are a lot of new breeds with colors, leave, colored leaves, even if you uh, can't get the flowers? Well, that's a great question. And keep in mind, I'm speaking from southern Wisconsin, and this, this is a personal assessment. But if you're getting standard redbud, make sure it's called northern grown, meaning it's from a, a source 
uh, up in our neck of the woods. It's not shipped up from Tennessee or from a Western state because it doesn't have the provenance. It doesn't have the the knowledge to thrive in our, our area. So northern grown redbud is fine. But the reference to the different leaf ones, I've had very little success with the purple forms. Um, there's a purple weeping one called Ruby Falls. There's now golden ones. There's a golden weeper. There's there's white variegated. There's a really cool one called flamethrower with bright orange growth. I've killed all of those <laughs> in the Janesville, Wisconsin area. And not because of soil or location, but because of a, a simple polar vortices uh, will toast those, in my opinion. But every now and then, I'll be in the mid-portion of Wisconsin, and I'll see, I'll see a Ruby Falls maroon weeping redbud tucked into a little microclimate. So it's about winter protection and microclimates in the, nor- in the, in the cooler portions of the state. I'm, I'm not going out buying any of the fancy ones, to be honest, because they're all listed as Zone 5 which many of us can grow. Uh, I don't think that zone five considers what a winter can be in Wisconsin. So be, be wary. Yeah, be wary. Daryl in Menominee Falls, uh, your turn now. Hi, Daryl. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I wanted to ask your guest. Uh, I have a, a real tall bush in the backyard that uh, is a house to a lot of birds. And <laughs> I'm, Every time I get near that thing, they they like to dive bomb me because that's their home apparently. And I wanted to trim it down. Uh, it's it's over seven feet tall. Is this still a good time of the year to do that before it starts flowering again? Or yeah, or yeah, yeah. Well, that and that's a great question because um, well, first of all, of course, good luck with the bird. Very very <laughs> protective, of course. So this time of year. It's only a bad time to prune a shrub uh, if it's a if it's a spring bloomer, uh, like a lilac or a mockhorn, something that's already formed its its flower buds for spring. Having said that, that doesn't mean you couldn't prune those plants because you just would lose the summer, excuse me, the spring flowers. So if winter is a great time because you see the silhouette, you can thin out older canes, you can prune it down to the size you like. So there's never a bad time for structural pruning. In fact, it's the best time in my mind. I do 90% of my pruning with very few exceptions uh, between November and March before before new leaf emergence. So your, your timing is perfect. Uh, just uh, wear goggles and protect your eyes from those birds. They may, they may come for you. Who knows? <laughs> Daryl, thank you, and good luck with the trimming. Uh, Nancy in Watoma, your turn. Hi, Nancy. Hi. So I moved my shade garden hostas, uh, ferns, astilbes from my kind of alkaline soil in Racine County to Washera County where it's sand, acid, and I planted them all under my pine trees over here because that's what we have here, and they are just peaked. They just, all of my shade garden plants are just really struggling, and um I've tried to put in some organic matter. I have really clean horse manure. I put some of that down, put down um, chopped leaves. And I'm wondering if there's something else that I need to do. People told me that they thought that my houses would love the acid soil here. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I think, I don't think you're doing anything wrong. I think you're actually doing everything right. And it, I think it was a matter of the plants being in a little more pampered spot, moving to a leaner situation. And they'll adjust to the pH but your addition of the horse manure and everything you've done with the leaves 
I think what you'll see in two to three years' time is your plants, it may be less, hopefully. I think your plants will be entirely fine. They're just adjusting. And I imagine those same types of plants, if you were to observe them at your neighbors, where they've lived in that county, lived in that area, and that soil for many years, look just fine. It's your babies are adjusting and just give it a little time and continue exactly what you're doing. I, I have no worries based on what you're saying. Yeah. Nancy, there you go. Thank you. Laura emailed uh, that, like many older homes on the east side of Madison, she has a two-foot-tall retaining wall along the sidewalk that's starting to cave in. Any ideas of plants that would trail over to hide this damage a bit? Yeah, that's a, if, if, assuming there's a bed or you'll create a bed, keep in mind once you start to see a retaining wall compromised, it's a, it's a matter of time. There's a lot of force behind even a short wall. So, of course, look into a replacement or, or something for the future if it's going to compromise the sidewalk. But there's a lot of plants that you can put there. If it's a sunny situation, one of my favorite plants is um, wine cups. And it's a native plant. It has a beautiful magenta um looks like a tulip almost, a beautiful magenta flower. Again, wine cups or calarahoe, and can take tough soils. It, it arcs over edges. I use it here in the healing garden in raised beds where it comes over and covers. Uh, the creeping flocks would cover a little bit of that edge. Um, you could do trailing junipers. There's there's some other things. I'm assuming sun here. If it's shade, there's it's a little more challenging, to be honest. But I understand the cosmetic treatment. Um, go to your your nurseries and, and ask her some ideas for that. And you'll find plenty of opportunities based on the site, but keep an eye on that wall, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dale in Stevens point, your turn. Hi, Dale. Hi, uh, Larry. First off, thank you for the tickets to the expo. I had a great time. Oh, wonderful. Uh, and then my question is, uh, we have white, white pines in the backyard and the white pines produce a lot of uh, needles. It's dark. Uh, underneath there, and the deer love it, but uh, looking for anything that might grow underneath there. And I'll take my uh, answer off the air. Okay, white pines. What will grow under white pines in the Stevens Point area? Well, I used to live up in Point. Love that that portion of the state. Beautiful country. Um, the challenge with the pines isn't so much, um, well, there's it's twofold. It's uh, root competition, of course, underneath. And if that layer of pine needles is too thick, it, it becomes, um, it tends to shed a little bit more water. So consider removing some of the needles, composting them, using them as mulch elsewhere. But a real slam dunk um, for underneath uh, white pines, I use uh, epimediums, or they're called barren warts. So there's a wide range of epimediums, which can take drier shade situations. Uh, look into hellebores and also lungworts or pulmonarias. And they should all be hardy for your area, probably a little challenging at the northern portion of the state. But again, lungworts, epimediums, and hellebores should do fine. But again, consider the depth of the needle mulch there. The, the soil will be probably slightly acidic, which will be just fine for everything I mentioned. But water everything in real well, keep it happy, and once it's established, you'll have a nice, a nice setup underneath that tree. Mark Dwyer, our guest today. His business is Landscape Prescriptions by MD, and you can join in with your plant questions. The number to call, 800-642-1234, or email to ideas at wpr.org. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network.
Great to have you along for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. I'm Larry Mueller. My guest, Mark Dwyer, his business, Landscape Prescriptions by MD. Give a call. The number is 800-642-1234 or email to ideas at wpr.org. Let's go to Louisa in Winona, Minnesota. Hi, Louisa. Hello. Hi. What's on your mind? Okay, so I have over 150 different type, different hostas, um, and I had a number planted on, in good shade under a tree, and the tree basically fell over. It was an old uh, box elder and just fell over. So I've got sort of really exposed hostas, and I'm looking for a fast-growing, not-too-tall, pretty, if possible, shade tree. Any recommendations? Mm, yeah, that's uh, well. You have an opportunity there, and and the loss of a box elder isn't the loss of any tree is is unfortunate, but a box elder is something I could deal with. Um, but you have the opportunity to put when you mention a smaller tree and a fast growth rate. There are some new hybrid maples that I'm a huge fan of, and they're uh, a cross between. They're not native, you should know that, but they're a cross between a, a Norway maple and a an Acer truncatum or Shantung maple. And it's, um, I'm trying to remember if it's called the Pacific Series. Um, no, Sunset Series, excuse me. Uh, there's one called, um, oh, I'm rambling here, but Norwegian, I think Norwegian Sunset, uh, Ruby Sunset. Um, gosh darn, I, I, there's, there's four or five of them, and, and a couple of them actually have beautiful maroon foliage. So when I consider a small tree and some, a fairly quick growth rate, uh, these maples fit the bill for growing a good foot, foot and a half a year and only get 20 to 25 feet. So, again, these uh, – I feel like I'm saying it wrong, but it's a sunset. Uh, if you Google up maple and sunset, you'll find this this series. But another great thought is a native tree like um, uh, green hawthorn or uh, – this is uh, – winter king is a great variety of hawthorn. Fairly quick growing, beautiful white flowers, nice berries for the birds – and um, so there's the benefit of adapting to our soils and being extremely hardy. So, again, mid-height um, crab apples might be a consideration, but they can be a little bit messy. Um, when you go to your area nurseries, uh, mention that mid-height, which I usually assume is that 25 to 30 feet. Uh, and there's many trees that are quite slow growing, but look into those hybrid maples, again, the hawthorn, and uh, I think you'll find something great. Good luck, Louisa. Thank you for calling. On to Linda in Oshkosh. Hi, Linda. Hi. Um, I have a tree peony that I would like to move, and I don't know if it's a good idea to do that in spring. Um, it's been growing in the same spot for about 20 years, and it's starting to go downhill probably because it's getting shaded out by other things now. And do you have any suggestions for that? Yeah, you actually you, you could move it in spring. Uh, you may compromise the the loss of energy and the in the actual impact and stress of the move might affect the flowering. Uh, having said that, the best times to move, if not in spring, would be then in fall. But if there's a decline and it's sort of struggling in this shady location, what I would do is move it on the early side, uh, but make sure you're treating it like a like a real shrub, a woody plant where you're really digging a wide hole, getting down in there. You'll run into woody roots. Move it on a cloudy day, keep it watered, and it'll settle in fine. Um, peonies uh, recover. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time, but, again, I, I feel like based on what you've said, I, I would be comfortable with a spring move, knowing, again, you might have 
uh, some issues with the flowering. Yeah, that makes good sense. Linda, thank you. Good luck. Bob and Kiwani, uh, hi. Thank you for calling. Well, good morning, uh, gentlemen. Um, I have a question about my cherry tree. Uh, now, I know it, uh, the recommendation is to trim them in the dead of winter, but kind of wondering, is winter dead or is it just kicking? Yeah. <laughs> it's <just> too late. <laughs> yeah, it's well, great comment. It's tough to say when, when spring really arrives. It, our seasons have become ambiguous, so um, I don't feel it's too late at all. If if you're not seeing flowers opening, uh, I think you're okay to do it. And, again, seeing the structure and being able to get in there and make nice, clean cuts is the most important thing. So I, I if I had a cherry in my backyard, I'd, I'd be pruning it this weekend. I mean, I would be comfortable doing that. Yeah, there you go, Bob. Thank you. Uh, Jill in Racine. Your turn. Hi, Jill. Hi. My husband likes to go, grow tall grasses. One of those got into my purple cone flowers, and I never quite got it out. When they start growing, should I dig that whole grass out? Hmm. Yeah. Well, it and it sounds like if that grass got into your cone flowers, it's likely to get into some other things. So keep that in mind if it's reseeding or spreading. But what I would do is if you if you do want to try to save the cone flower is dig it all up together so the grass embedded with the cone flower and keep dipping it in a bucket of water. Keep teasing apart. The roots of the grass will probably be extensive, but you might be able to tease out the crown of that cone flower and then replant it elsewhere. And my bigger concern is if it's a thuggish grass, consider digging out more than that um, conflict. There might be more going on that meets the eye. So, again, uh, dig and try to separate if you can. Um, Keep an eye on that grass. Jill, thank you so much uh, for calling. Teresa emailed. She bought an uh, an Echeveria Remillet succulent on a whim. It has twin heads and doing well growing inside and is beautiful. But she's unclear how how often she should water it. One website said one time per month as it should be dormant in the winter. But clearly, it is not dormant. It has multiple baby shoots. Your thoughts? I don't have a lot of experience with Echeverias, although, oddly enough, we are selling some in our, we have a cacti and succulent sale here at the hospital. It's just finishing up, and that was a, a popular uh, purchase. The, the, the kiss of death for Echeverias is overwatering. So, of course, a sunny spot is necessary. But never judge its watering needs based on the soil you're observing because it, it'll look crispy on top. Uh, the watering during the winter every every three to four weeks is correct and just enough that you see it come out the bottom. Um, and then when you get into a hotter portion of the season, whether you have it outside or inside and it's getting more direct sunlight and, and hotter sun, you could go every two weeks. Um, consider a very light fertilizer a monthly as you get into the growing season. But um, again, I'd err on the side of, of less water uh, than, obser- you know, again, don't water based on that soil you're seeing. They're, 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 they're quite tolerant of a, a dry situation in that container. Marion emailed that some uh, people have beautiful rounded spireas, and wh- when and how do you cut them so perfectly? Uh, let's see. She cut hers back a foot or so, and when should she do it? They flower in early summer. Yeah, this will sound severe. I've used words like butchering and, you know, cutting things back severely. But if it's a Japanese 
I call them a meatball spirea, the short rounded ones that are three to four feet or so in both height and width. I would cut literally go out today and cut it to an inch. And that sounds extreme, but what you get is brand new growth and you get flowering, flowers on new wood. And then after the flowers finish in midsummer, give it a little shave, cut it back in half, give it another cutback, round it into a hemisphere or a, or a meatball, however you want to do it, and it'll keep that shape. So um, at, when I was at Rotary Gardens, we had over 200 of these types of spireas, and every winter we would butcher all of them down to an inch. Now that doesn't – things like bridal wreath spireas and some of the other ones you don't do that to, but any of these Japanese-style rounded short ones, you can be extremely vigorous on them. And the ones you cut – trim back in midsummer may rebloom too. So butcher them back and then prune as needed to keep their shape. Sue emailed, she has a basswood tree the squirrels took the bark from and the, and the branch died. This winter they've done it to another branch. They're relatively small in diameter, maybe two inches. Well, back to the, what's up with our squirrels? Uh, yeah, actually, David had uh, called in to say he's heard that diluted cayenne pepper sprayed on bark will help deter them. Yeah, the cayenne pepper is actually effective for rabbits, too. If you put, uh, like, cayenne pepper flakes in a container or something just to keep them away. But, you know, back to the squirrels, of course, a larger tree, it'd be hard to do really anything to exclude them. But the hope is that that tree is going to regenerate is going to regenerate new growth and and um you know lindens basswoods are notorious for um having all sorts of (laughs) the squirrels go for smaller branches for nesting material and i i I guess i wouldn't worry about it unless again to your earlier caller larry see how it see how it leaves out and see if there's a you know dead patches then it becomes more problematic but i wouldn't worry about a, a basswood regrowing and by the way, that cayenne pepper uh, sp- sprayed on um, your bird seed <laughs> will also help keep the squirrels away from the bird seed, and the birds don't mind it. I'd never heard that. That's that's interesting. Yeah, they, the uh, the squirrels will get hot mouths, but not the birds. So there <laughs> you there you have it. <laughs> Mark, Mark Dwyer, our guest. Mark, a, a speaker, educator, and author. His business is Landscape Prescriptions by MD. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio. Listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here. Glad to have you along today as we visit with Mark Dwyer, speaker, educator, author, has degrees in landscape architecture and urban forestry, and his business is Landscape Prescriptions by MD. 
and he's the healing garden manager at Edgerton Hospital. So, as we talk with him, I hope you'll join in. Open lines get you on pretty quickly with your gardening questions. The number to call is 800-642-1234. or email to ideas at wpr.org, ideas at wpr.org. Mark, you, you know, you've mentioned uh, more than once, uh, and, and kind of in passing, uh, the um, healing garden at Edgerton Hospital. And, and you and I have talked about this in the past on the show, but I think it's, you know, a lot, probably a lot of people listening that don't understand the concept or what the garden is about. So maybe take a minute to talk about it. Sure. Well, thanks, Larry. Yeah, the, the idea of a healing garden sometimes seems ambiguous in terms of, you know, what is it? And I, I would argue that all of our gardens help heal. You know, it's their places of respite, enjoyment, recovery. Uh, specifically, though, at Edgerton Hospital, we have a three-acre space just south of the hospital. It was, was planned when this facility was built in 2010, opened in 2011, uh, to include an all-accessible garden with raised beds. There's an area for uh, yoga and exercise, uh, wide paths, again, um, all accessible. There's a neat pond in the center. But the intention is a space for certainly patients to come out, whether it's for physical therapy or just getting out in the fresh air. Uh, we see a lot of staff out here, and, it, and it's also for visitors uh, to the hospital and the community in general. And one of the great things we're doing is focusing on fragrant plants, sensory engagement, uh, nutrition. So the space itself is beautiful, and I feel like that's the easy part, making it look look a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. We're going to have you know, about 40,000 bulbs blooming here in spring and then segue into summer and all that. But we have some great activities coming up and a really full year with exciting things happening. But it's um, a great example of a garden meant for everyone, but very specifically tailored for restoration and uh, recovery and both passive and active immersion. It's a, it's a, a great, great concept. And I, I love the idea. Um, I want to go back to deer for a minute because Lisa in Sheboygan emailed that she has lots of experience with deer decimating her plants. They love salvia, no matter what kind. She has found that the only plants she, uh, she's found that grow in cool, shady conditions that the deer do not eat are boxwoods, spruce trees, golden uh, ground cell ragwort, sage, bluebells, daffodils, and allium. <laughs> well, and that, that's a it's a great list. What I find interesting is my my time in Janesville at Rotary Gardens, and then here at Edgerton, uh, the difference in palate. There were things in Janesville that were never consumed that are consumed up here, um, but I'll, I'll still argue that I haven't seen any salvia uh, nibbled here. But I would totally agree with boxwood. Uh, it's t- poisonous for for deer, so they'll leave boxwood alone. But um, for spring bulbs, both daffodils and alliums that were mentioned are excellent, and that's the majority of the bulbs we have here in the healing garden. So um, pallets will differ, and I, I'm starting to see deer nibble on junipers and spruce, which is, uh, and they've always nibbled on arborvitae and pine, but they're broadening their palate, and if we get a really horrendous winter, there's very little they're not going to try to nibble on. So it's <laughs> we're always learning. <laughs> <laughs> always learning. A listener emailed to ask if you have recommendations for plants 
And, and how to grow native plants in containers. So uh, recommendations for native plants. And how do you grow them in a container? Well, growing in a container would be easy for pretty much any native plant. The, the concern would be, first of all, you're putting in, in an artificial, artificial soil situation, which might be overly good. You might have this really well-drained potting soil with fertilizers. And so it might be overkill for native plants. And that's not to say you couldn't include them in the container, but when you head towards winter, you're going to want to install those in the ground. Uh, you're not going to want to leave those true perennials out in an elevated container because of freezing and thawing and the damage over a winter. So, again, including natives in a container as an element is, is fine, but I, again, worry about it being overly rich, but also what is their treatment heading into, into pre-winter. Makes sense. Dot, in Chippewa Falls, it's your turn. Hi, Dot. Hi. I have a question for you. I have a Hindu rope plant. They also call it Carnosa Compacta, and it's like 15 feet long, and I want to propagate it, but I'm not sure if you're supposed to cut below the node or above the node, and I want to make sure I do it right. <laughs> sure. Well, I've got to admit, I don't know that I don't know that plant at all, but I'm I'm intrigued, and my guess is you'd be able to if I'm assuming that's a house plant, and um, I would recommend finding another source or talking to a local florist that sells house plants, someone who would be knowledgeable with with how to prune that, because I don't even want to hazard a guess, and I I wish you luck, but I, that I don't know that plant. <laughs> all right, there you go, Dad. Check in with your local uh, florists uh, uh, for that information. Mary in Green Bay, your turn. Hi, Mary. Thank you. I appreciate you taking my call. I heard you talking about the Japanese spirea a little while ago, and I have some spirea, and it's been in the ground for 30 years, and I'm not sure what type it is, but I'd like to really hack it back because it's constantly overgrown, and it seems like I'm always trimming it. Um, can you tell me how to tell the difference? Uh, well, if it's so, I mentioned earlier the spireas you don't want to butcher back or shouldn't are the later blooming, uh, excuse me, the earlier blooming bridal wreath types, the taller white ones. Um, if this is a smaller one that gets the pinkish summer flower, early summer flowers, if it's a true Japanese spirea, you can take that thing down as low as you can because my guess is over 30 years, you've, there's a thicket of stubble down there, and so it, it tends to be kind of rangy with growth. So if, if that's the case, I would take it down as low as you can possibly cut it any time now before you get new growth, and you'll, you'll literally have a brand-new plant. If it's the other type, you can do selective pruning, but that's a little more challenging. Yeah, there, there you go, Mary. Good luck. Appreciate the call. Uh, Bruce, in La Crosse, it's your turn. Hi, Bruce. Hi. Uh, I, I've got some uh, tulip bulbs that I have, have been storing in my refrigerator, tried to uh, force some tulips for Christmas, which was uh, kind of a semi-failure. Can I still plant those uh, those tulip bulbs for spring bloom? Yeah, the short answer is uh, absolutely yes. So with your forcing, if they're still in the pot and they've, either bloomed or not bloomed and have green foliage, let them still photosynthesize, let them still brown out, and then you'll still have a firm bulb, and then pop that in in spring anytime you can get into the soil, and they'll be fine. They do have to adjust to being a little off kilter, but they, they'll likely get back on track for the following spring or even the year after. So 
any forest bulb I've ever done, tulips, daffodils, crocus, hyacinths, I've always replanted in spring following the procedure I just mentioned. Let it let it go dormant and then pop it in. All right. There you go, Bruce. Thank you very much. Uh, good luck with it. You can join in, too. Uh, open lines get you on pretty quickly here. The number to call is 800 800- Six four two one two three four one eight hundred six four two one two three four, or you could email them. The email address ideas at wpr dot org. Ideas at wpr dot org. You mentioned uh, and some silver or white plants that you really like, and we've got a question about what those were again. Can you go back over those? Sure. Well, the the new one is called um, Silver Swirl Centauria, and that's C-E-N-T-A-U-R-E-A, Silver Swirl Centauria. And that looks like, a, it's called Summer Snowflake, and it looks like a snowflake when you look down on it. So it looks like a, like a dusty miller, very silver foliage plant, but like imagine the brightest white you could ever think of. I'm getting quite a few for the healing garden, and, but I mentioned earlier, uh, these silver leaf plants that like full sun are all from areas where they need uh, drier, leaner soils. They don't need a lot of overhead watering. You, you need to, some benign neglect is what keeps them happy, to be mm-hmm. honest. There's, there's also some wonderful artemisias both perennial and annual. There, there's some that spread, but um, there's a good one called Garden Ghost, which I believe is perennial. Um, Garden Ghost Artemisia, very textural, uh, excellent in the full sun garden. And to my earlier comment, the silvers and whites, I think, are underrepresented. So uh, when you go to your local garden centers in spring, zero in on those silvery plants as container components uh, for your bed and border schemes, whether they're annuals or perennials, that pop of silver is going to be excellent. Michael in Richland County, we'll go to you now. Hi, Michael. Hi, how you doing? Good. Appreciate the call. What's on your mind? Hey, I'm. Uh, I got. Um, I got 40 acres that I recently bought with my wife in Richland County. I'm looking to do some better deer habitat. A lot of a lot of food around there is just um, like winter browse. So I'm looking to put in some hickory. Would you go with something better or a hickory, a good type of plant? And when would you plant it? And in, and you're you're interested in a a, a nice looking tree, but one that will provide some sustenance for the deer. For deer, yes, apples, which I have a few apple trees, but I notice there's very few hickories around, or uh, not hickories. Um, I can't believe I'm having a brain fart right now. Oh. Oaks, maybe? Were you thinking of oaks? And, no, or, uh, I got oaks. I got oh, we, oh, you're breaking up, unfortunately. So, well, oaks uh, are certainly, I think he said he had some, but, I mean, for when it comes to a, a tree that provides food, oaks are right up there. Yeah, oaks for sure. I, I You know, and if, the, if it was uh, shagbark hickory or hickories that pr- provide nuts as well, uh, my only concern is if there's not a lot of them up that way, there's probably a reason for it. That's not to say they're not hardy, but uh, I would get in touch with your local extension agent to see what sort of soils you have, get a little feel for that, and focus, as Larry said, heavily on oaks. There's not a better plant for, uh, for wildlife in general, but you hit the nail on the head with apples. You could do crab apples. Um, 
it's interesting we've gone full circle with deer being problematic to this gentleman providing for deer and that and there's nothing wrong with that you know we all have different different likes and dislikes but there are some things i'm sure uh through the extension service that might help you um, create shelter belts that include a lot of plants that'll help sustain deer so um, get a little more information on on the conditions you have and you'll find a, a full palette of things that'll thrive for you Steve in Adams will go to you now. Hi, Steve. Uh, yes, I have a area where there is two very mature white pine, and there's an oak tree in between them that died, and I took it out this fall. Now, my question is, with all the acid from the pine needles and so forth over the years, I would like to put in a red twig dogwood. Would that survive in there with because of it being so acidic? My gut, my gut feeling is yes. Although the the two concerns, number one, um, if you had the stump ground out or if it was uh, yanked out and you have an area where the soil's still settling, let that settle because a danger in planting something in the same spot is continued settling would bring a new plant deeper and and be problematic for its establishment. But if if that's not a factor at all, the other concern would be. Uh, heavy, heavy pine needles. And the slight acidity, it's amazing how um, the acidity provided by pine needles is fairly minimal, and dogwoods would be totally fine with that. The competition with the roots becomes a challenge because the dogwood will need sufficient moisture to be established. But having said all of that, I absolutely feel you could grow a dogwood in that gap. Just, uh, just make sure that site is ready to go. All right, Steve, thank you very much for calling. What do you think about lamb's ear as a as a forage uh, foliage plant? Oh, I'd love lamb's ear. And, and a lot of people will will say, "Oh, that's that's been around forever." Well, there's a reason for it. Um it's it's a nice spreader. It it loves full sun, nice uh pubescent, very furry. We have a huge patch here at the Healing Garden that's positioned so people can touch it. It's very tactile. There, are, there is a variety that doesn't uh, bloom. I think it's called Helen von Stein. The flowers are, are interesting, great for pollinators, but some people don't care for them. Having said that, there's now um, there's a neat compact form of lamb's ear. There's a, a golden form. Um, the short answer, Larry, is I, I absolutely love it. Um, you don't, don't overwater it because it can rot out, but it's a plant you'll have literally forever and can share with all your friends. And somebody else wondered about ornamental grasses. Which ornamental grasses do you like and prefer? Well, if we're talking about full sun, I lean into the native panicums or switchgrasses because there's a lot of great varieties of different heights, different colors, including some great ones that get really neat red highlights heading into fall. Varieties like Shenandoah, uh, ruby, uh, excuse me, ruby ribbons, uh, prairie fire. Um, go, when you're at your nurseries, ask about the red-tinted switchgrasses. Um, aside from panicums, I still lean into the natives, like little blue stems, big blue stems, and there's great varietal selections that have uh, more blue to the foliage or a better late-season color. So, again, big and little blue stems and switchgrasses or panicums is the way to go. Michael in Richland County. Hi, Michael. How you doing? Good. I lost service there. Oh, okay. and you're back. Okay. All the, the driftless area here, it's got all this up and down. Anyway, I forgot. I want It was chestnuts is what I wanted to plant. Oh. And what he thought about the best timing to plant them chestnuts. Not hickories, because I have hickories. I have apples. I have crab apples. So I got a good, I got a good amount of uh, 
a good amount of foliage around me. Not in, you know, they browse in the winter time anyway, so they don't need a lot of that stuff. I'm looking more like I'm going to put two acres of beans up on top, and I would like to plant some trees that aren't native on my 40 acres. And I was thinking of chestnuts. So, what do you think about that? Hmm. Well, the planting time in spring is great if you can find, for instance, bare root chestnuts that you can pop in the ground. Um, and you mentioned non-native, that, and I was going to say, you know, American chestnut with um, chestnut blight still has an issue, and it's still. I would research what the American Chestnut Foundation is doing because they're doing a lot of crossbreeding with Asiatic chestnuts and American chestnuts to create these chestnut blight resistant selections. So all that all of that I'm blathering about, in essence, you should be able to find some non-native or hybrid chestnuts that would work for you. And they should be hardy and your planting time would be when they're dormant, bare root coming up here in spring. So uh, they're out there. You just have to sniff around and your best pricing will be for um, quantity smaller ones again bare root where you can poke them right in the ground yeah that's and you mentioned the american chestnut society uh foundation yeah i believe it's american chestnut foundation maybe it is society um they're doing uh, amazing work and the the chestnut blight wiped out literally billions of american chestnuts further particularly further out east but it's not gone and the the concern is that it uh might rear its head again here and there. So um, they have selected some resistant straight up American chestnuts as well. Uh, I would just encourage your, your caller to do a smidge more research on what would be appropriate for, for his area. Yeah. And Chessa, there, there's been uh, certainly over the last several years a really renewed interest in, in bringing those chestnuts back. Yeah, absolutely, and there's there's some very hardy non-natives that'll provide the fodder and, and will will provide those nuts in time, of course. But are are worthy, they're great shade trees too. I mean, they're they're a top-notch plant. So um, back to the uh, healing garden for just a, a minute. We're wondering about the plants and and what about the experiences? Now the the garden, the healing garden's been in a bit. Can you talk about the experiences? Uh, positive experiences of it. Yeah, the nice thing is when we have exit surveys from the hospital, you know, you ask about your care and what did you think about your experience? The two things that come up are the food, which is which is great here by the way. They have an executive chef, which is a side topic, really good food. But the um um the healing garden, the fact that the recovery rooms look upon a beautiful space. You know, not a not a parking lot or even just a couple of trees, which would be better than nothing but a landscape space. And as people enjoy it passively, they have the opportunity to enjoy it immersively. They've wheeled beds out, wheelchairs, post-recovery, surgical recovery, people coming out and enjoying the fragrances, the little shaded areas. And um, we have amazing community events. I know June 28th, we have a, a event called Flower Power and it's a um, the details to be announced, but it's an engaging enjoyment of the garden, food, drink, all that sort of thing. And we also host a horticultural therapy symposium uh, this year on August 7th, using the garden as really a vehicle to share with people how we can garden as we age, adapt our gardens. And we have a lot of attendees that are therapists and are wondering, how can I engage my clients or my patients in a space where it's conducive to their recovery. What we what can we do out in the garden that helps us recover mentally and physically? 
we're all doing it in our own landscapes as well. That's why there's a huge bridge with what a healing garden truly is. But our three acres, I think, is becoming more special for very specific use as well. And Mark, your own business, your other business, Landscape Prescriptions by MD, how, how are you doing with that? Uh, it's, it's going great. I, I, I appreciate your shameless plug. I, it's, I, I've got to say, um, it, landscape design and consultation is a joy. I love helping people out. Um, I, I should mention I have more work than I can possibly keep up with, but what, what's fun is doing a combination of helping people with their, their questions and their own home landscapes, but then the day job here, helping create a garden that's for everyone. And um, it, I'm getting my plant fixed, which is the most important thing for me <laughs> in my life. So it, I really enjoy it, and it's, it's great to be with you and chat with your audience as well. Always great to have you with us, Mark. Thank you so much for taking the time today, and we'll look forward to another visit. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Thank you, Larry. Mark Dwyer, his business is Landscape Prescriptions by MD, and he's the Healing Garden Manager at Edgerton Hospital. You might go online and take a look at that. It's, uh, it's quite, quite amazing. Always great to have him with us, and he'll be back. Uh, Monday at this time, our physical therapists are in. We're going to talk about how to improve your sense of balance. Uh, at least we'll start with that, but of course we'll take your other questions as well relating to physical therapy. That's Monday at 11. In the meantime, thanks for listening and stay with us. Lots in store on the Ideas Network. I'm Larry Miller.